Nasu. This morning we turn to the next of the four measurables, empathetic joy. The emphasis there in the, the Pali Canon, of course, is taking empathetic joy in the, the virtues, the joys of others. But since the overall orientation of shamatha practice, just for starters, is to be viewing our own body and mind from the perspective of our substrate consciousness. The continuum of consciousness carries through from one embodiment to the next. And it actually makes quite good sense to practice from that perspective empathetic joy for ourselves. That is, empathetic joy for this particular incarnation, this particular embodiment with this very fleeting body that's here for just a short time, and frankly, this very fleeting mind that arises in dependence upon, that is configured by the body. Both of them are very short stories. In some cases, they're merely a poem. There's good poetry, good poetry and bad poetry. All they have in common is they're short. <laughs> but the perspective from the substrate consciousness that's our home in samsara. We're like homing pigeons. And we fly off to one embodiment and then come back and roost for a little while in the substrate consciousness. And then we fly off to another embodiment, thinking each time, thinking this will last, this will last. But we're like a yo-yo that always comes back to the palm. Sometimes we sleep a little while. Remember Sleeper? hangs up, but it always comes back. So to view our own present existence from the perspective of substrate consciousness is in a way to view our present, uh, our present existence from a perspective that's seen it all. You know, if we could really tap fully into our memories that are, conventionally speaking, stored within that continuum of consciousness, within the domain of samsara, there's really nothing we haven't experienced. We could just say, been there and done that. You know, from the highest to the lowest, everything in between. Been there and done that. So there's a tremendous amount of wisdom. Plato, referring to this transmigration, he said, everything that we know, it's really, everything we have a sense of learning, uh, it's really simply brushing off knowledge we have from past life, past lives. That's within the mundane context. Mundane context. So as we venture into empathetic, empathetic joy this morning, I'd like to bring forth or highlight a practice many of you are familiar with. Because it's right there, right towards the foundation, right towards the beginning of the Lam Rim. And that is focusing clearly in upon what in, in especially Indo-Tibetan Buddhism is called this precious human Rebirth, this precious human existence, life. Actually, they say body. Body. So what's so precious about this body? Everybody's got a body. My body is not very special. Old. That's, but even that's not very special. A lot of old bodies around. Right? Some of us have better bodies. Some of us have worse bodies. But even the better bodies get worse. So then that kind of levels us all out. But the lu, lu den, the lu, the body is the basis. Independence upon which arises the mind that we can use now 
And in that regard, with this coarse body, but even more importantly, the subtle body, the subtle body of the flow of the prana, of the, of the nadis, the channels, the bindus, that makes this kind of a special body. Not so cheap, not so easy to acquire. That's just a human body. That's just a human body. Well, there are seven billion, seven billion of them on this planet. A lot of them don't look all that precious. It's just hard. Just hard. When we see the number of people living in poverty, struggling in one way or another, so many struggles, so many challenges, doesn't seem like that great a deal just to have a human body. And in and of, a, in and of, a, in and of itself, I'd have to say that's, that's true. So many people, they're born, they struggle, they die. But when you speak of Danjogmi Lirumbache, this precious, precious human rebirth, imbued with leisure and opportunity, and that is that for those of us right here in this room now, and I suspect people li- li- listening by podcast, we are so enormously fortunate that we, I think we've actually proven it by the fact that we're here or even now listening by, to the podcast. We already have demonstrated by that fact that we don't have to spend every single moment of our waking hours just trying to survive because you would not have time to listen to these podcasts. Right. You couldn't spare the time. Say, I'm sorry, I'm just too busy. Just too busy. Now, many, many people are just too busy just seeking more and more and more hedonic pleasure. From the hedonic perspective, it's just the opposite of dharma. It's really quite remarkable. From the hedonic perspective, when it comes to the two types of well-being, hedonic and eudaimonic, when it comes to hedonic, there's never enough. There's never enough. We always some, want something more. Even if we have enough acquisitions, we want that something more, something more, something more to our last dying breath. A little bit, a little bit more, a little bit more. Oh. It really won't stop. But when it comes to eudaimonia, oh, nothing is fine. Thanks, I'm already full. Thanks, no, no, no problem, I don't really need that. So when it comes to you and you know, we're completely satisfied already with none. That's the hedonic perspective. It's never enough with the hedonic, but eudaimonic, ah, none is okay. Because the hedonic's working out pretty well. Right? And the Dharma perspective is just the opposite of that. The monastic ideal, be satisfied with that which is merely adequate for all of the hedonic. Be satisfied. Be satisfied with that which is just enough. And is it really enough? And again, enough is different for different people. If you have children, it's not enough to not have enough for them. Right? If you're in ill health, it's not enough to have no medicine. And so forth. Different countries, different places, different contexts means enough is different. Widely different. But then when you see in your circumstance, you have enough then be content. But when it comes from the Dharma perspective, when it comes to eudaimonia, genuine happiness following in the path, there's never enough. As, as Tsongova says, when it comes to learning and practice, never be satisfied. Never be satisfied. Be a Dharma preta. Never satisfied. Never enough. So even when you're dying, even when you're breathing out your last, you say, I'm not finished. I'm not finished. So you can have my final breath, but I'm not finished. I'm still practicing Dharma. I'm not finished. I'm never finished until enlightenment. So precious human rebirth. It's
It's precious because one is found. The leisure, that one does not have to spend one's, all of one's time as an animal, just surviving and procreating. And one has the opportunity to actually find genuine happiness. That requires, of course, outside and inside. It's not enough to have the longing. But one must find then, okay, who can help? Where is a light that can shine a path, illuminate the path? Where there's some companions? It's hard to do on your own. Individual like Dujum Lingba, he could do it on his own. He came in turbocharged. He could get it all directly from his own rikpa. That's rare. For the rest of us, having teachers, having friends, spiritual friends, having the outside support. When all of those have come together, the outer mandala, the inner mandala, have come together. The yearning to find a path, and then meeting all that is needed from outside to find a path. Then that forms what is called a wish-fulfilling gem. And its basis is this body. And to recognize that, if you have found such a gem, to recognize that first, then recognize in its broader context the rarity of it. And that's an empirical fact. This is not, there's no point that I'm saying here. Now, now you have just to believe. You have to believe just because the Buddha said so, authority, tradition. No, look for yourself. How rare is that? And then just use your imagination. Again, no blind faith. How precious. How precious. Such a life or having, oh, the wealth of a Carlos Slim or a Bill Gates. Which more valuable? Or having the, the fame of a Steve Jobs or some movie star, something like that. Which more valuable? I don't know. Which? It's a simple question. You can answer yourself. Then you see. So once you find such a body, such a life, with such opportunity, then if you're a perceptive person, l'audin, l'audin, perceptive person, then you say, ah, then this must be cherished. Sometimes that which I'm cherishing is very difficult. The body can be very difficult, the mind can be very difficult. Very better to be very difficult than not have it at all. So let's not be like the ancient mariner of Tibet, of Indian legend, the ancient mariner who went out to the great ocean in search of a wish-fulfilling gem, an actual gem, some kind of a high-tech device maybe left by people from UFOs. I don't know. But some, a wish-fulfilling gem, an actual entity. This was believed in widely in classical India, believed by many Tibet, traditional Tibetan Buddhists also. But there is such a thing, they say. Whether it's literally true, I think doesn't matter so much to us now. But some gem where you could, if you could find such this rare, rare device, you could simply, you polish it off, you clean it up, you treat it with respect, and then you just focus your intention. You don't need samadhi, you just focus your intention. May I have this in any of your mundane desires? Well, fame, you know, it's, it's the genie in the bottle, but it, didn't, it doesn't give you three wishes, it gives you as many wishes as you want. You just focus your attention on it. Some super high-tech device, maybe from some other galaxy. Who knows? But just by focusing your attention on it, whoa, then it comes out. 
in any mundane you want. You want women, you want men, you want money, wealth, fame, whatever you want. There it is. Wham. You know? So wish fulfilling gem. That's a wish fulfilling gem. And so the ancient mariner, this in the old Indian legend, goes out to the great seas and and years and years goes by, always looking because apparently they're found especially in the ocean. How you look for them, I don't really know. But after a long, long time, the ancient mariner drops his net down, and lo and behold, he finds it. He pulls it up, and he says, wow, I got one. I got one. I found what I've always been looking for all these years. I got one. And he tries it out. Is it really a wish-fulfilling gem? And he says, yeah, wow. I've got a wish-fulfilling gem. He takes one long look at it, recognizes it, throws it over his shoulder and says, I hope I find another one. <laughs> That's us. If we don't value this life. So let's begin there. We'll extend outwards. Empathetic joy. as an expression of delight, of satisfaction, taking full advantage of this present opportunity. Let your awareness descend now not into the body, not into this mass of flesh, or this field of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. But let your awareness descend into the space of the body. And come to rest in these empty appearances of tactile sensations of the earth element, as substantial as a cloud, as a rainbow or a mirage. Let the light of your awareness fill this empty space in which empty appearances arise and pass. Let your awareness illuminate the entire space. As you release your body, release all grasping onto the body. Release all grasping onto the sensations arising in the body. Release all grasping onto the feelings arising within the body. Let it all go. And 
release the grasping that there is a body really there and that there are really feelings arising in the body. All of these arise independent upon conceptual designation. Withdraw the conceptual designation and the reification together with it. Likewise, release the breath. The breath, the sensations of the breath, more empty appearances. Devoid of an owner, devoid of a controller, devoid of inherent nature. Appearances of movement arising in space. Release with your body, speech, and mind with every outbreath, as if it were your last, total surrender. Once you've given it all away, this out-breath, if a breath flows in of its own accord, receive it as a gift and receive just what is offered without taking more and without inhibiting what is given. Let the breath flow in and out without an owner, with no one in charge. mind itself can be such a burden, so heavy, so claustrophobic, 
so harsh. So let's release it. Together with all its cares and concerns, all its ruminations. Resting in the flow of awareness, release your mind. Let it dissolve away. You don't need it for now. Maybe later. And take as the very essence of the instruction for this practice. With every outbreath, relax more and more deeply. Find further dimensions of release, of letting go. You've not come to the ground yet. There's more to let go. With every outbreath, relax more and more deeply, and simply, without losing clarity, there's nothing to be achieved. Simply don't let the the natural clarity of your own awareness be obscured by dullness. Now from this perspective of relative stillness and clarity, as if you were having an out-of-body experience and an out-of-mind experience, you with your own intelligence, your own powers of discernment, what are the opportunities that lie in the palm of your hand in this lifetime, with this body. What value would you place on this? This life in which there's leisure, 
And there's opportunity not only to practice Dharma, but the opportunity to venture onto a path, a path of irreversible transformation, maturation, liberation and awakening. How rare and how precious is that? as if we are practicing pure perception in Vajrayana. We look through the veils of hedonic suffering. The challenges that rise up to meet us objectively. We see through that to a deeper reality. A reality of immense opportunity precious beyond all reckoning. Rejoice in the opportunity that lies in the palm of your hand. Cherish it. With the resolve to take the very essence of this life by putting the body and mind to the greatest possible use for your own and everyone else's benefit. Then turn your attention outwards. Avoid any possibility of any sense of elitism, of superiority. Insofar as we have special opportunity, the only realistic response is gratitude. 
and a sense of responsibility. And turn your attention outwards. others who also have found such leisure and opportunity. With each out-breath, breathe out the light from your heart, a light of appreciation, of satisfaction, of joy in the flourishing of others. Especially those who take full advantage of the opportunities that lie before them, who take the very essence of what it means to be a human being, this precious, fully endowed human life. You may attend to those who lived in the past, who took the essence of this life, found the path, followed the path, some even to its culmination. To those in the present who are doing so, and those in the future, as if we stand up and give them a standing ovation, applause, delight, rejoicing. With each outbreath, embrace them with the light of gratitude.
rejoicing in their virtue.
release all appearances, release all effort, to extend your awareness out to any object, with total release of effort, let your awareness come and rest in its own nature, naturally still and naturally clear. So I'm going to keep you after class a little bit today also. Already during the time of the Buddha, 2,600 years ago or so, it was already said then from the Buddhist perspective. That was degenerate period. The other Bodhisattva said, oh, too degenerate, too degenerate for me. I'm staying up here. But this one, Gautama, he said, I, I come. See, so he came down. 2,600 years ago, degenerate India. And within that society, within that time and place, he identified those who were especially strong in rumination. Of course, he recommended and taught more than any other practice during those times, according to the Pali Canon, mindfulness of breathing. (coughs) Which in a way is so effortless. I mean, we don't have to try to breathe. Just be with what's already there. And he laid out those four stages, attending, breathing in long, one notes, I breathe in long, breathing out long, so you remember them. But then I also noticed just this morning that he gave four descriptions, and it just suddenly struck me, oh, they, they have to be a match. They have to be a match. He said, in that analogy, when he said, this mindfulness of breathing, wind practice and develop, remember he said it's like a great radiant cloud out of season that suddenly dispels and vanquishes all the grime, the dust, the smog in the air? Just in an instant, poof, like that. And then he said, when this practice, when developed and cultivated, it's peaceful. That's the first thing he said, peaceful. And that it's soothing, it's relaxing. It's like, ah. Breathing in long, one notes, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one notes the long exhalation. Ha. Ah. After all the hurly-burly, all the agitation, all the hecticness of the outside world, that's peaceful. And then as a number of you have already found, gradually as the whole system settles, your whole pranic system, your whole breathing system settles in its natural state, you may suddenly kind of drop down a floor. Breathing in short, one notes. Breathing in short, breathing out short, one breathes out short. And the Buddha said, it's sublime. So he just knocked it up a notch. It's sublime. You really want to do this. This is, I don't want to stop. Strangely enough, I'm really enjoying breathing. 
Who would have ever thought? And then attending to the whole body one breathes in and attending to the whole body one breathes out. You get into flow. Right? Whether you're attending to your whole body, as, as a Sangha suggests, whether you're attending to the whole body of the, of the breath, as Buddha Gosa suggests, both fine. But you get into that flow, and then he said, this is an ambrosial dwelling. An ambrosial dwelling. Just want to go with that flow. And finally, you come to the culmination of this practice where your pranic system settles in its natural state. Your mind settles in its natural state. Coarse mind dissolves into substrate consciousness, into, to use Pali terminology, into the babanga, the ground of becoming, your home in samsara, which is by nature pure and luminous, only adventitiously or temporarily obscured. And when you come to that stage, breathing in long, breathing in, one soothes, one calms, one settles the composite of the body. In other words, the whole system, the composite. And breathing out long, one settles, one calms, one soothes, one rests in equilibrium in its natural state, the whole system of the body. The body's been brought to balance. Nivajiv shamatha. And at that point, he says, in reference to his metaphor of the cloud, the cloud burst, the rain coming and purifying the air, He said, and it dispels in an instant any unwholesome thoughts that might arise. In other words, your body, your body mind has become pliant, the mind has become clear, the mind is free of the five obscurations. So even if some little creepy, crawly mental affliction or some unwholesome state should arise, it comes up and then he just can't stand it. And it just floats downstream. It doesn't have the oomph. So once you've achieved that, let alone the, the, the actual jhanas, let alone the four measurables, let alone vipassana, stream entry and all of that, once you've achieved that, just that, right, if you are living in a degenerate era during the time of the Buddha, you're no longer living in a degenerate era because your home is not in your body, which is in a degenerate era. Your home is not in your mind, which is heavily conditioned by your degenerate era. Your home is in your substrate consciousness, which is not in that time or any other time. It's the keeper. It's the one that carries through all the times, good times, bad times. By nature, luminous, pure. That's your home. So it doesn't matter what time you're living in. And it doesn't matter what place you're living in either. Because that's not what the substrate is. All those times and places, those are the appearances arising to the substrate. But your home. So now whatever characteristic there may be about your time and place, no longer relevant. Not your business, at least not for you, because your perspective, your home now, is not there. Right? Let's jump to the 19th century, 1860s, Dujum Lingba, out there in the wildlands of nomadic Tibet, out there in Golo, wild cowboy country. Really sparsely populated. Speaking to his nomadic fellows, you know, living in a tent. He never even had a monastery. He just lived in his gear, in his yurt. You know. And he speaks of other methods of shamatha. Visualization methods for, for focusing on a bindu with the heart or Buddha image and so forth. Very good, no problem. But he said, you know, if your mind is coarse, if you are really prone to prana or vata problems, that is imbalances in the nervous system, then, though, then really applying yourself to such practice, such shamatha methods may make, may make you just go catatonic, which is actually not the purpose of shamatha practice. 
In which case, he said, for those of us living in a degenerate time, with strong, rough minds, heavily prone to mental affliction, I think the, the modern word would be neurotic, And with a lot of mental afflictions, he said, well, those other practices are not going to work out so well for you. For you better just sit back and watch the show and take appearances and awareness as the path and let them be and just watch the movie and watch your mind disappear. Settle your mind in its natural state. So that's what he taught to his nomadic contemporaries out in the wildlands of Tibet when actually Dharma-wise, things were pretty darn good. The Remet tradition was growing up. There were these incredible masters of different traditions. I think all of the traditions. And there were 6,000 monasteries. And really, you could say, well, that was contemplative center for planet Earth. It's not saying Buddhism is better. It's simply saying, I don't think there was any society on the planet that had a higher density of contemplatives, monasteries, people utterly devoted to Dharma than Tibet in the mid-19th century. I think it's just a historical fact. Mongolia might be a, a runner-up, and of course, adjacent Bhutan and so forth, part of the same culture. So that was 150 years ago. And now here we are in modernity. Where the norm is neurotic. That which is considered to be healthy is neurotic, and the primary antidotes are entertainment and drugs and work. Did I leave out anything? Maybe a few religious rituals once in a while. Just to, you know, everything's okay. So in this modern world, the pace of life, the multitasking, the bombardment, everything we already know, the normal person has a nervous system that's pretty well shot. I mean, not the point of total dysfunction, just moderate dysfunction. And the mind that rides upon that nervous system, the pranic system, the nervous system, also the normal is quite neurotic. From the perspective of the Buddha, perspective of many, many other cultures that were not caught in this morass that we call home, mind's neurotic, the body is sick. That's normal. And the degenerate times, pretty intense, pretty intense. So what to do in these times? When we look within, we try to practice, and we can't find clarity. Can't find clarity. We're looking for it in the wrong place. You're looking for clarity in your mind, that's like going to downtown Los Angeles in September and looking into the sky and looking for clarity. It's all smog. You're looking in the wrong place. The awareness that's looking for clarity is looking in the wrong place. The awareness that's looking for clarity is clear. It is clear. It's by nature clear. It can't help it. It's a substrate consciousness. So don't look for clarity. Discover clarity by releasing everything else that isn't. Release. Don't strive. Release. So if you're looking for clarity, you're looking in the wrong place. That with which you're looking is clear. The effort to balancing the mind. 
So difficult. So difficult. Maybe impossible. If you can't balance the mind, get rid of it. That's my motto. If you don't like your mind, disown it. See, I gave you a chance. You haven't lived up my expectation, you're fired. I'm just resting in awareness now. Mind, you can fade off. You're not my problem. Go entertain yourself. Don't strive to balance your mind. Maybe it's not possible. Too screwed up. Then release it. Release the identification with it. Release the reification of it. Just let it go and come to rest. When all the releasing has taken place, come to rest in the place that's left over. And that's just the nature of your own awareness. It's easy when we strive, not only for six weeks, but when we strive for six years, or 40 years, or longer. It's easy to lose confidence in our ability to accomplish anything shamatha, bodhicitta, vipassana, any of these glorious things we hear about. Really, some often feels like being beggar with no money and wandering down like, what's that famous road in Beverly Hills? I've been actually on it. Really famous. The Rodeo Drive. I've been there. I didn't buy anything. <laughs> but I watched where the rich people shop. And I watched the rich people in their restaurants. I just drove by because they didn't tack me for driving by. I got to drive by for free. <laughs> they didn't have a toll. You too can look at the rich people. You know? It was free. But I knew that I got into the, out, out of my car and looked at the menu. I said, oh. <laughs> so often listening to teachings from the wonderful lamas, it often feels like being a beggar. And they're showing you menus. Come right in. We have a three-star hotel. Look at the menu. Wonderful menu. It begins with shamatha. It costs only 3,000 lifetimes. <laughs> and then we move to the main course. Vipassana and bodhicitta. A little bit more expensive. Then we move to stage regeneration. Pièce de résistance. The stage regeneration completion. Or if you really just like dessert. Then we have textured and tickled. And to the beggar, it all looks really good. Makes you just salivate until you're drowning in your own saliva because you can't afford anything. All you're doing is just drowning in your own drool, choking on your own drool. Gosh, I wish I could afford any of that, but I can't afford anything. So it's very easy to lose confidence that we can accomplish any of these things. So I would say give up. Give up hope. That's what I would say. Give up hope that you can accomplish anything. In this day and age, I think it's maybe impossible. Except for really rare individuals. Like Jujum Lingma, maybe impossible to accomplish anything. So don't accomplish anything. Discover what's already there. Which cannot be accomplished. If you don't have it, you'll never get it. Not in three countless eons or ten times that. If you don't have a substrate consciousness, you can't buy it for love or money. This poor piece of paper, out of luck. Never get it. Right? 
the sheer luminosity, the purity of your own substrate consciousness, you'll never accomplish it. If you don't have it, you'll never get it. But since you already have it, it's nothing to be accomplished. Just release and let go of everything else. And of course, that's true all the way down to Rikpa. If you don't have it, you'll never accomplish it. So give up any notion of accomplishing anything and just release all that's obscuring that which you already have. Some of you find it difficult to meditate in longer sessions, asking whether is it, is it is okay if the session is only this short, or this short, or this short. One of you mentioned five minutes. Is that too short? No, I think it's too long. I think five minutes may be too long. How can you meditate for five minutes? I'm going to try. I just failed. I'll try again. I just failed. I'll try again. I'm just fa- I'm always failing. I'm, I'm never meditating for five minutes. I'm just failing, failing, failing. I'm still failing. I'm still not able to meditate for five minutes. Because five minutes is a concept, and I can't meditate for a concept. I can either meditate now or not. That's my only choice. But I don't want to meditate. I'm tired. So I just want to stop meditating. I don't want to do anything. I just want to sit here. What's left over is awareness. Home. Five minutes is much too long. Maybe, if you're a beginner, maybe one breath. One whole in-breath, out-breath. Without, don't move a muscle. But for one in-breath, out-breath, let your awareness just rest at home. Don't move a muscle. You don't have to change your posture. One breath, in-breath, out-breath. Stay home. Now, how hard was that? I think the answer was a little bit. That means the session was too short, too long. Too long. One in-breath, one out-breath. I can't meditate for one in-breath and out-breath. I can only meditate for part of one in-breath. And another part, and another part, and then part of an out-breath. When my sessions have almost no duration at all, then I feel, okay, I'm getting pretty close. Now I think I've found the right duration. But five minutes seems like an eternity. And one whole in-breath, out-breath seems like all day. Hard to meditate all day unless you've achieved the first jhana. So don't meditate. And don't practice shamatha. And give up all hope of achieving shamatha. you probably never do it. Just stay home and relax. Right there in the present moment. It's really easy. Any of you that still think awareness of awareness is difficult, you simply haven't understood it. You're making it too complicated. Just rest without doing anything. Without slipping into non-reality of the future because it hasn't happened or into the past which has already happened but no longer is. So just stay where it's real. Relax there without exerting yourself to go anywhere else. Even out to the sense fields. If they arise, let them arise. Big deal. Don't strive for anything. and Don't try to accomplish anything. Don't hope for anything. You'll probably be disappointed. So give up already. 
Give up all hope, ye who enter here. Just relax. Without losing the flow of knowing, without losing the natural clarity of your own awareness, which is your birthright, just rest there. And if at times you get drowsy and feel like you want to fall asleep, then fall asleep. Sleep as long as you like. Just like if you get hungry, eat until you're full. And if you need a lot of sleep, take a lot of sleep. Some people are quite skinny. They should eat more. You need a lot of sleep? A lot of sleep. Be happy. Don't try to achieve anything. Whether your eyes are open or shut, you can't shut the eyes of awareness anyway, so don't worry about it. The eyes of awareness never close. They only get hooded. So that's a path of no accomplishment. Nothing to achieve and nothing to meditate on. So let's close. It's already 10 o'clock. I'm going to just end with one image. Imagine a barn. Empty barn. No lights. All dark. In the middle of the barn, something called a forklift. But many non-native English speakers may not know the term. It's very easy. It's just a platform, a level platform, that has an, a, an engine that makes it go up and down. Forklift. So it, it just, it's a platform that goes up and down. And so imagine lying on, the back, on your back in the supine position, Shavasana, on that forklift. And then you're looking right up at the top of the roof, right at the middle of the roof. Maybe, let's say, it goes from left to right. The roof goes from left to right. And in this dark barn, you see there's, there's a crack in the very top of the roof, right where the two sides meet. It's a very, very narrow crack. You can see the light coming in all the way through. The rest of the barn is dark. And in fact, the crack is right above your eyes. So you decide to focus there. It's very thin, very narrow. But you're totally relaxed. And you just let your gaze go where the light is. And you relax and simply rest there, attending to that narrow band of light. And then somebody turns on the forklift and gradually elevates you. So that your eyes, your whole body, and of course your eyes then, gradually ascend, 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 up to where that band of light is, that crack in the roof. And that which looked very, very narrow, almost just paper thin, when you're down at the bottom of the barn, as you're coming up, it seems to actually get broader because you're getting closer to it. And broader, and brighter. Until eventually that you, the forklift takes you all the way up until your eyes are right next to that crack. And then it's so close, you can't even see the barn anymore. You can't see the roof because all you can see is space filled with light. And it's open in all directions. Focusing on the present moment in awareness of awareness, resting right there in the immediacy of the present. It seems like you have no wiggle room 
seems like such a narrow bandwidth of time. How long is it? One second? One half of a second? How much of a fraction of a second? Really small, right? Because the, the, it's closed in so tightly from the future and the past that when you're trying to rest there, the mind is so easily slipping into some fantasies about the future or memories about the past. It seems like it's a very small bandwidth, this present moment. But as you rest more and more deeply in it, and the forklift rises, as your awareness settles more and more simply, without elaboration, without encumbrances, in this immediate present moment, releasing all else, then the present moment in its natural luminosity and space rises up to meet you. Until your eyes then are no longer seeing the barn, and all there is is the space and luminosity. So rest in that present moment and rest more and more deeply until all that remains is the open luminosity of your own awareness. And you see, there was nothing to accomplish that required no effort or any hope. And when all is said and done, it really doesn't matter how much damaged or screwed up your body and mind is because they're both in the barn. And that's not where you're attending. Attending some, something beyond the barn, which is, it was never encumbered, un, encumbered by this barn or any other barn. Wide open, clear, and pure. Never to be achieved, only to be discovered. And to be discovered by releasing all else. Well, that's all. Enjoy your day.